As you should know, I'm a married man. Been married for 26 years to the lovely Carolyn. And uh, what you might not know is that it almost didn't happen. I don't mean the wedding. I mean the relationship. Uh, I actually met her on a blind date and uh, really enjoyed myself and then made a follow-up call the next week and said, uh, you know, hey, Carolyn and her roommate answered the phone. And I said, well, I was trying to get a hold of Carolyn. Her roommate said, uh, she's not here right now. Can I take a message? I gave her my name and my number. I'd love to hear back from her. Week goes by. Two weeks goes by. On the third week, you start realizing that maybe that blind day didn't go as well on her side of the experience. And so fortunately for me, I had five sisters, most of whom were living in the area at the time, none of whom, mind you, have um, any respect uh, for me as their pastor. Uh, none have called me Professor or Dr. Ryer. I'm just Chucky in my neighborhood. And... One of them said to me, Chucky, you're being an idiot. She may not have gotten the message at all. And I argued for a little while because, you know, I don't want to call a second time and get like, I mean, that's really too much for my fragile ego to handle. So I pick up the phone and fortunately, Carolyn did answer the phone and her story was that her roommate never passed along the information. Whether or not that's true or not... She picked up the phone, so she had to go out with me a second time, and then, as they say, the rest is history. In a more modern context, you may have had the experience of texting somebody who you liked. Maybe it wasn't even a, a, a romantic interest. It could have been somebody who you wanted to be friends with or somebody that you thought uh, was important and they were going to get back to you, somebody who you needed, and maybe an hour, two hour, a day, two days, three days go by and you begin to start wondering, should I read anything personal into their absence of response? There seems quite a delay. And you know, there's precedence for reading delays as slights. I mean, when you think about how we respond to certain invitations versus others. I mean, we respond to the ones we really want to go to with great zeal and speed. Yes, I will go and sit in the box seats at the Dodger Stadium with you. Yes, I will do it immediately. Yes, don't let anybody else into those seats. Those are mine. Thank you. And then, of course, there's the Evite to the 15th baby shower you've been to this year. I'm not speaking of our church per se, but I'm saying it's, if you hang out with a lot of young families, that might be par for the course, and you're thinking to yourself, maybe if I don't open the Evite, I can actually respond, I didn't get it. Sorry, I really didn't know. You see, in Los Angeles, there are two answers. It's yes and not no, but I'll try. And that means you're not coming and you had no intention of coming in the first place. The common human experience of people delaying an answer and maybe having some anxiety be birthed out of that uh, could very easily be used as the basis of a misperception that many of us have about God. See, it'd be easy, maybe logical, to transfer this anxiety about delayed answers to our Heavenly Father and then have difficulty with the often slow pace that He takes in answering our prayers, or at least slow from our perspective. 
they have often told me, and they is the conventional wisdom that has no reference at all. God may not come on our time, but he is always on time. Today we're going to transition from Jonah's flight from the Lord to his specific turn of repentance back toward the Lord here in our ongoing study of the book of Jonah. And our passage actually begins today with the 17th verse of chapter 1 because in the original Hebrew text, that's where chapter 2 starts. For some reason or other, when they translated the Old Testament into English, they made Jonah 117 part of the first chapter instead of the second. But needless to say, what it could do was make you miss an important miracle that took place. I'm not speaking of the the big fish, the whale, or whomever swallowed Jonah, that, yes, would be a miracle, but the bigger miracle is the transformation of someone's heart, that through the oversight of circumstances and life that God has brought somebody literally to their rock-bottom moment where they would cry out to the Lord. You see, God has an agenda. Let's not lose sight of what his agenda was in the book of Jonah. Amidst all of his gracious dealings with Jonah, amidst all of the great things we can see about God's patience with the rebellious like me and you, um, let's not forget that God's agenda was that his word would go forth to the people of Nineveh, and Jonah said, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go 180 and head for Tarshish. See, in his rebellion, though, it fractured some of the things that were in place regarding his relationship with God. You know, sometimes you might forget that God will always get his way when he determines that something will happen for sure. The apostle Paul didn't get asked, would you like to hear the four spiritual laws? He got knocked on his butt off his horse and told, you will follow me. So when God's good and ready to do that, he will. And in Jonah's case, he got his way. Sometimes, as a quick side note, you may feel that evil is triumphing over good and that perhaps people of power are in place to thwart God's plan for your life, but that isn't true. King Solomon wrote in Proverbs 21.1, one of those Bible verses that you're just going to want to memorize. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. In light of God's movement in Jonah's life, Jonah started praying again. It may take pain or our failure, but God is doing this in all of our lives because as we talked last week, he made us for his pleasure. We are here to serve him. He enjoys his children. He has worked for the restoration and the reconciliation of those children, and he loves when his children return to him. Jonah is talking to the Lord again, and his upbringing in the scriptures is starting to evidence itself by the fact that he is praying through the Psalms as a guide to prayer. He has compiled a thanksgiving psalm in response to his place of brokenness. In the depths of his despair, he has put together a thanksgiving psalm, which is something that uh, it's a musical poem prayed in gratitude after deliverance from difficulty. In his case, deliverance from his own stupidity. Twelve psalms in the Old Testament are exclusively or partially called thanksgiving psalms. Six are exclusively or partly community thanksgiving psalms. And thanksgiving psalms can be found throughout the Old Testament. Uh, and, and particularly outside of what we call the Psalter, which is 
the 150 psalms that comprise the book of Psalms in the Old Testament. And there is usually a historical event. There's a story, something that has actually precipitated the writing of one of these songs. Thanksgiving psalms generally usually have five components to them. And Jonah's psalm is no different. It has an introductory statement of thanks for being rescued, a description of the misery rescued from, a description of the appeal for the rescue, an indication of the rescue itself, and a testimony or a vow to continue to show gratitude in future worship. Now, Jonah 2 is so similar to Psalms 18 and 42 that critics of the Bible have actually used it to cast doubt on the reliability of Jonah as a historical, reliable book of the Bible. See, they presume that Jonah wouldn't have had a copy, obviously, that or a flashlight inside of the whale, so they would think, how would he have known these things? See, they would have thought he doesn't have that precise recollection because when you look at the texts of the Psalms and you look at the actual text in Jonah, they're extraordinarily uh, similar. So the presumption is that later somebody added this in to make the story kind of rounded out to help out Jonah, who didn't really have that kind of biblical understanding. And this is how critics of the scriptures read the Bible. Any evidence of similarity, which we would call spirit-directed symmetry, they insist must have been added in later to match or to make the case. Hypocritically, though, anytime there doesn't seem to be harmoniously identical passages, say in the Gospels, these same biblical critics will say, see, the Bible has contradictions and it's not exactly the same everywhere. If you've determined that the scriptures can't be a supernaturally guided document, or feel the compulsion to discredit it so its morals don't trap you in their awful sense of right and wrong, then what you have to understand is the Bible is going to be damned if it does and damned if it doesn't. It will never be able to satisfy. Your soul will have to be able to be softened by God to see that there are other explanations. The orthodox explanation of Jonah's recitation is that the whole of his recitation is a combination of things he learned. The Psalms were written centuries before Jonah's ministry, but his prophetic predecessors, this school of prophets that he likely was part of, Elijah and Elisha and all of them were schooled in the Old Testament, especially the Psalms. This was part of a regular practice. And funny, strange as it is to somebody who isn't a Christian is that when we are in the depths of despair, believers will often use the Psalms to pray for us. It's a great guide for prayer. It should be a part of your prayer life. It teaches you about God. It teaches you how to talk to God. It teaches you that it's okay to yell at God when you're in a bad place and that he's really okay and can take it. Um, it teaches you a lot of things. And so it wouldn't have been uncommon for an Orthodox Jew, somebody really enthusiastic about the Lord, it wouldn't have been uncommon for them to pray through the Psalms, particularly in a time when they were down. 
They are the revealed word of God and the means by which we not only learn to pray, but learn about the character of God. And over the next month of sermons in Jonah 2, we're going to dissect this prayer. We're going to investigate the character of God, which should always be our purpose in studying the word of God. I don't know about you, but when I was a young Christian and was told I needed to read the Bible, I wasn't quite sure what to do. Um, Some of the teaching I got was kind of like, the Bible is your playbook, so learn the rules and do the best you can, and then you'll have your best life now, and and, and that kind of thing. And so I treated the Bible like it was there to serve me. The Bible has commands that if we follow them, we will experience the fruit of the Spirit. We will experience the fruit and joy of living and knowing God. But the primary purpose of the Bible is to reveal the character and the majesty and the holiness of God. And so when we come to Scripture, we're supposed to be looking for the aspects of who he is. And in this particular case, we're looking at what we can learn about God through Jonah's prayers because oftentimes who we think God is is most evidence in how we pray. We'll see what the prophet knew about God deep down in his heart as he cried out to the Lord from the depths of the sea and the depths of his pain. Today we have one overarching thought with two resulting action steps. So our big idea today is this. When we cry, he hears our voice. This is what we can be assured of through Jonah's experience, through the experience of the Psalms, that when we are in a moment of despair and we cry out, even though we may not hear an answer immediately, we can be sure that he isn't delaying for no reason. He has heard your cry. It says in verses 1 and 2 of Jonah 2, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. This prayer comes from David's experience of deliverance, and you read it earlier in our worship service from 2 Samuel 22, verses 1 through 7. It's also recorded as Psalm 18, verses 1 through 6 in the Old Testament. And it comes as a result of David's experience fleeing from King Saul. If you're not familiar with the story, let me give you the abridged version. Some spark notes. We called them cliff notes back in my day. This is what happened. King David becomes this powerful general in the army of King Saul and then becomes best friends with his son, Jonathan. Things are going along really well. Saul, thrilled to have David running the show on the battlefield. Saul himself a warrior. And then all of a sudden, the crowd started cheering something akin to this. Man, Saul's killing thousands, but David is killing tens of thousands. And 2 Samuel tells us that this refrain, the crowd's praise of David, galled Saul. And immediately his heart began to turn against someone he had previously thought was my protege. Very excited he's here. Now all of a sudden, David is stealing his glory. And he goes after David with a vengeance, tries to take his life, tries to poison his relationship with his son, Imagine the confusion of having your mentor turn on you and seek your death. 
Now, maybe you've had somebody who you considered a mentor or a role model in your life, and that relationship may have gone sour, but have they ever really tried to kill you? Think of it. Think of the most powerful person in a country, a king or a president, setting their sights on destroying you with all of the power at their disposal. There was no Congress or judiciary to keep Saul from ordering the army, go kill this person. And that's exactly what he did. David had both of those experiences in one. As the nation's number two military commander behind King Saul, David was tutored and led by Saul and then hunted by this jealous and frightened sovereign. Can you imagine the powerlessness he must have felt? Edward Snowden has nothing on King David because it isn't just a military-industrial complex coming after David. It was his best friend's dad and someone whom he loved. There was national and personal betrayal. Oftentimes we'll hear the truth of when we cry, he hears our voice, and if you're like me, you'll say, really? We pray he answers? Sometimes that's not our experience. I've been told tritely at times by people that God always answers prayers. It's either yes, no, or wait. That is not comfortable at all, and it is not comforting. And it may not even be true because my experience has been this, that God answers prayers yes, no, or you will wait to get an answer from me. It isn't always a guaranteed yes or a guaranteed no. Sometimes there's this enormous gap between when we proverbially text him and he responds. What we're assured of in Scripture is that he read the text, that he got the message, that he knows you're crying. He heard that. Now, whether or not he's responding on, like, on cue like he's here to serve us, that's a totally separate issue. We'll get to some of that in the weeks ahead. What we're dealing with now is can we be sure that he hears our voice? And my sometimes frustration with God, and the Psalms record occasions where other believers have known this feeling too, is that we fear God isn't listening because he doesn't appear to be moving very quickly. Even Psalm 42, which critics would have said would have been part of the uh, imposition into Jonah from somebody. Jonah is apparently plagiarizing Psalm 42 in part. Verses 9 and 10 of Psalm 42 says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where's your God? He does hear us. But he is clearly using this time of waiting to do something. And one thing I know in my own experience has been that the time of waiting resets in me a longing to return to fellowship. If I've been in rebellion to the Lord, and I've had quite a bit of experience with this in my life, that my heart needs to be set on him and not just getting my life back in some order out of the chaos in which I've decided to live. It has to be reset on him. My desires for him have to become clear. It has to be about me wanting God, not just wanting God to fix my life. So he will have me wait. 
Sinclair's commentary on, Sinclair Ferguson's commentary on Jonah states that our restored fellowship with God is the goal and begins in the areas where rebellion formerly existed. And Jonah's prayer, at least these first two verses, show us two clear steps to take in our repentance. So while our overarching theme today is that when we cry, he hears our voice, there are within this text two steps we can take of, in repentance of what Jonah did. What, do, what does it mean now for us to turn to God practically? What are we turning from and to? And the first is that we return to intimacy with God. This is step one in our repentance. We turn in our intimacy to God. We flee initially from the presence of God, as did Jonah. And we're not merely, as Christians, in the moral compliance business. Can you roll that thing forward for my next verse there, pal? Thanks. We are called into relationship with the living God and his presence. The Pharisees of Jesus' day were morally and religiously compliant with no need whatsoever for relationship with Christ or dependence on Christ. And we all know how Jesus felt about the religiously proud Pharisee of his day. Pride marked their demeanor. They thought themselves superior to others, but they knew little of the intimate presence of God's Spirit in their lives. We have been called, like the psalmist wrote in Psalm 42, to pant for the presence of God. As a deer pants for flowing stream, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. For Jonah, crying out to the Lord was reconnecting to his innate need for more than a moral set of principles. He had a need for fellowship, satisfying, soul-satisfying fellowship with God. He needed God's presence. Now, I've had to grow into this next thought, this appreciation for the reality that we won't experience total fullness in God's presence until we see Jesus face-to-face. One of my mentors, Ray Cortez, often says, we are filled with the presence of God daily, but at night we leak grace. And so we wake up each morning with a new need to, be ex- to experience the presence of God. One day when we see the Lord face to face, we will no longer have to strive for this. We will no longer have to walk to the proverbial well to get the living water. But in this world, at this time, we are called to turn back to fellowship with him. This is what it's about. It's not about turning back to behavioral compliance. It's about saying, Lord, what I really need is you. Sinclair Ferguson says this, this is why Christ died and why the Spirit is given. This is the goal of our salvation ultimately, that we might be presented before the presence of the glory of God. But God intends us to make us, intends to make us conscious of his presence now as well as then. And he's prepared to go to any lengths to do it. This is what he did in Jonah's life. It was accomplishing multiple purposes at once. It's saying, I'm going to reach the people of Nineveh and I'm going to have you return to me because we're going to have a restoration of intimacy with my spirit. 
That's step one of repentance. Step two of repentance is a return to the word of the Lord. As Jonah prayed his way through the Psalms he once memorized, he was again reaffirming that the truth of God's word must guide and direct all of our thinking. Thinking biblically is the call of every Christian. And you can't divorce the scriptures from prayer. Our prayers are a means of correcting our thinking about life in the presence of God filtered through scripture. We speak truthful claims about him and about the circumstances in which we find ourselves. There is no such thing, friends, as praying correctly, as if God's up there saying, well, you didn't quite get that one out the way you wanted to, so I'm going to withhold giving this to you. He sees our hearts. He knows what we need. But there is a sense where we benefit from praying the truth of God's word. We benefit from saying what Jonah would have said in his moment of despair. It would have been easy for him in the belly of this fish to go, God, I know I'm a, you know, not loved by you and I doubt you're even listening. But instead, he breaks into the scriptures and says, you've rescued me. I'm in the belly, I am in the belly of Sheol. When I cry, you hear my voice. See, he's, he's preaching the gospel to himself. Prayer changes us. Prayer informs our hearts and minds, and God guides our prayers through his word as his word reminds us about the truth of his disposition towards us. It's the kind word of our heavenly father. It's the filter through which we're to pass all of life. Psalm 18 Verses 21 and 22 says, For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God, for all his rules were before me, and his statutes I did not put away from me. So you can see this. His truth, his word is before us, and we are like looking at the world through a lens we see now clearly. We see the way we're supposed to see it. St. Augustine said, the holy scriptures are our letters from home. I love this verse because it reminds me of when Carolyn and I were engaged. I moved to Florida right after we got engaged, and we were a thousand miles apart from each other. And this is pre-internet, pre-free cell phone, long distance. And so what you waited around for was letters, handwritten letters. We did not have personal computers at the time. And so you didn't just type something out and put it in the mail. You certainly didn't have email. And so you had to be patient. You'd go to the mailbox. If it wasn't there, you'd think to yourself, well, maybe it'll come tomorrow. And and this was the nature of it. You were sort of forced to be patient, something I'm not necessarily good at. But it also forced you to have hope, a confidence that even though you hadn't heard from your loved one, they were thinking of you. So when I did get a letter from Carolyn, it was an incredible joy. And there was something that people who used to get letters in the mail remember, that many of you who don't get anything but junk mail in your mailbox don't. If you've never experienced the joy of getting a letter from a love, you don't just read the thing once. And you don't like, oh, that was a nice letter. Shoo. You know, you, 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 you like meditate on that bad boy. I mean, I can remember getting letters from Carolyn and, and reading them and then coming back that night and reading them again because it, it wasn't like it is now. 
there was a distance that made me feel like oh, I've got I've to reaff- reaffirm to myself this beautiful woman that's a thousand miles away loves me and, and I'd read and I'd, and I'd soak it up. Something one could forget over time and distance. So you and I are, are in the same place with God's word. You may have read through it once. Congratulations. It's quite an accomplishment. It is. But you need to read it all the time. You need to be re-reminded of God's love. You need to be reminded of his majesty. You need to be reminded of his grace. You need to be reminded of his holiness. You can't stop reading his word. It, it has to fashion your every thought and, and be the filter through which you read all of life. It's his gift to you. Charles Spurgeon said, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to somebody who isn't. The gospel is our key to understanding the whys of the things we do. What I mean by that is we read and pray not to earn the right to enjoy God, but because we've been given as the children of God the privilege of calling ourselves his beloved. And the reading and the praying are things that serve to remind us of this truth. The children of God are cared for by their heavenly father, The children of God need not worry about their needs. Jesus has said clearly that the children of God's heavenly Father knows he needs and they need those things. We're to instead first pursue a relationship with our Father, intimacy with his Spirit, and a submission to his word, allowing his kingdom values and truths to run and rule in our lives. The word says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be given to you as well. Resting in God's love for us as it has been shown in Christ is the only way we patiently wait for a response. It was Jesus who said, if you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your heavenly father. We're called to trust that God is good and that he showed us this in so many ways, but primarily through his ultimate act of allowing his son to sign up for the mission to suffer a judgment we deserved and to die in our place, something we would never do. Can you imagine allowing a child to die for a sinner like you? The scriptures say, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? God's means of growing in our capacity to trust him is talking with him and studying his word. Eventually a transformation of our minds will yield a prayer life that is in effect self-correcting. Practically we'll begin to pray what we know is true even as we wrestle with the fact that our minds and our hearts may not have caught up yet. Psalm 130 verse 5 says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word, I hope. And we also, in that moment of waiting, believe that when we cry, he hears our voice. Let us pray. Today, Lord, we are comforted by the reality that you love us and that you have told us the truth of your word that we can really soak in. You've promised to provide for us. You've promised to meet our needs 
you've promised to fill us each day that your grace was sufficient for that day. You've also assured us that when we pray, you're hearing us, even though you may not answer in the time frame we've set, we can rest today in the reality that your word is true, whether we feel it is or not. We wait for you, Lord. Our souls wait. And in your word, we hope. When we cry, you hear our voice. Forgive us for our impatience. Forgive us for how quickly in our impatience we will turn to the idols of our lives to meet needs that you have said only you are able and should be providing for. Father, in this time of communion, I pray that you'd bless your children and remind them of the joy that you have in them being your daughters and sons. God, would you give them grace to know that you love them and that you long for fellowship. In Jesus' name.